Hello, this is Guillem Balaguer, and we're going to have another special, special episode of the Pew Football Podcast. The reason being is because I'm interviewing a friend of mine, I have to say it like that, but not just a friend of mine, somebody who you all recognize, you all know, and I'm sure, especially in his time as a pundit, universally admire, and that's Jamie Carragher. But the important thing about talking to him is that he has been a crucial part of my career as a journalist. He was in very important moments. And one of the moments I'm going to bring out is one that I haven't discussed with him that has to do with getting a story from one of the players at Liverpool and me using it for an article which created a little bit of havoc in the changing room at the Liverpool Football Club when Rafa Benito was in charge and Jamie Carragher was one of the top players there. We'll talk about his book, uh, The Greatest Games, which I, I hugely recommend because it makes you think, uh, especially on games that you think that uh, you knew very well. And, uh, and generally, it's always, always a pleasure to uh, talk to him. So without further ado, I'll bring you Jamie Carragher. Jamie, how are you? Yeah, so good, game. Yeah, not too bad. Well, let me tell you what uh, what we're going to do. No, no. Let me tell you what my plan is, and then we go wherever you want to go. But uh, the idea is to talk about uh, your latest book, The Greatest Games. Also, based on what you learn on, on by looking back, I want to ask you a few things uh, in terms of how football has evolved and what you think is going. And I want to mention one or two big players uh, that I hear you talking about, and I want to discuss them with you from Messi to Maradona. Plus, I want to thank you, and I want to start there, with the amount of times you helped me throughout my career. And I think there are more than you think. I don't know if you're aware, but the first time I've ever visited a um, training ground was Melwood. Yeah. And I was invited by, uh, by the great Gerard Houllier and Phil Thompson. Uh, you know, you do the press conference and they say, oh, come over. And they walk me into this sacred part of, uh, of a, a training ground of a professional club. And I was going there for the first time. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, <laughs> walk into the canteen and they give me some food and I'm the happiest person in the world. And all of a sudden, Stevie G passes by. And because uh, himself, yourself, were watching Sky Sports at the time and Spanish football, it was like, oh, hi, Guillaume, as you were my best friend. Then you pass by as well. <laughs> and, and he's like, oh, hey, and start talking to me uh, about players, <laughs> Spanish players, Spanish teams. And you made me feel so comfortable and so welcome, which is not always the case when you are on the other side. So I want to thank you for that first um, introduction into the prof professional football. You, you to uh, us were that famous guy from Revista de la Liga. <laughs> right. So we, well. had to, we had to speak to you. <laughs> I never was aware of all that. And perhaps later on when I realised that uh, Spanish football had touched so many people's lives. Not just uh, They were not just fans of uh, Spanish football. They had gone to Spain and lived through what it means to be a Spanish football fan because of what Sky was doing at the time. Then, of course, um, I've shown you many times in Sky and I admire the energy you bring into any conversation. The ones in front of camera, the ones off camera. So we will be just quietly discussing, maybe not quietly, but discussing what was going to go on Revista. You will pass by, you will destroy the conversation, but bring new elements to it. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> uh, and uh, So... Again, thank you for making us think yeah. what people see on, on the screen is what we see of the screen, is that passion that you've got for the game. But more for the game, see if I get in this right, 
for what you do, for whatever you decided to do. Isn't it right? Yes, of, of course. I mean, I take uh, the way I played as a player was very enthusiastic. And I take that into punditry now. And I'm sure if I had gone into coaching or managing, I would have been seen as a an enthusiastic, maybe emotional uh, type of coach, maybe on the sidelines. Because, uh, yeah, I think with football, it just... It just gets me going, gets me juices flowing. It has done since I can ever remember at the age of four or five. And I don't think it will ever lose me. I always find something to analyse, look at, debate, disagree, agree uh, with, with football. It, it very, very rarely, if ever, feels boring or there's nothing to talk about or there's nothing new or a new manager or a new team, a new system or something that, as I said, I can be interested in. Two other moments in my career that you were very important in is that uh, for the first book I wrote, uh, A Season on the Brink, it was, of course, about that first season of Rafa Benitez at Liverpool. Uh, I, I was given the opportunity to write it, or I was asked to write it about four hours after you won it. Uh, it was like, right, now we've got a reason to write a book and you have to do it and you've got two months because it has to come out in October, whatever. And again, everybody went on holidays, you went on holidays, but you picked you pick the phone up and uh, and discuss things with me. One thing I and I didn't put into the book was the fascinating situation when we I was invited by Xavi Alonso's family to join them in the hotel afterwards, and nobody could come into the hotel apart from Jimmy Carragher's cousins, of which you've got about <laughs> eighty. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so people knocked the door, and it's like I'm Jimmy Carragher's cousin. Ah, then yeah, come in, come in. How many cousins did you bring to the <laughs> to the party that day? Uh, Everyone was my cousin there, wasn't it? What a night that was. I mean, that was just something that everyone wanted to be part of. And it's, you know, a big thing. You can imagine Liverpool supporters. Where's the team? Where's the hotel? And I spent half my night, instead of celebrating the Champions League, was getting people in the hotel, uh, really. So it was it was a, it was a brilliant night, uh, that reading. And to be honest, that's just Liverpool people. They want to be where the party is. And uh, the main party, shall we say. And uh, they were everywhere. They were like ants. Yet, yet again, it's the kind of thing that you don't get seen written anywhere when you talk about Liverpool. The, the two things we describe, me coming into the canteen and you welcoming me. And, and of course, you wanted uh, Liverpool people, fans, to actually share your, your happiness. It is what I feel Liverpool is, is made of. I lived in Liverpool for 12 years and that's what I always felt. So, again, thanks for being for embracing me as part of all that. The last one, I did a column for the Daily Mirror. This, I've never discussed this with you. And I did it for a while until until I got fed up with uh, the column being distorted and uh, my words not being what got eventually published with the idea of always twisting it to make it more uh, sensational or more tabloidy. But one of the ar articles I wrote was something that happened in the changing room at Liverpool at the time. Rafa was in charge. You were, you were one of the captains. And a player told me a story which uh, described the moment and I put it in. Yeah, I remember what you're talking about, about set pieces, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and there was, there was, in a way, I guess the, the player kind of said too much but wanted it out there for whatever, whatever reason. You took, my understanding of the situation is that you took the paper or had just read the paper and went to Rafa and said, Rafa, you should not be talking to journalists. Uh, that's not the thing to say to anyone. Uh, Rafa knew, obviously I had a good relationship with Rafa and, and, and you knew that. It wasn't Rafa, the source. At that point, he looked at the player and the player was like this. And he said to you, yeah, okay, okay, it was me. 
and uh, and I shouldn't have done it. Sorry, it won't happen again. Do you remember that? That yeah, I do remember. It was on the back of a, a game against Aston Villa, and we hadn't played particularly well. I mean, not, not that we hadn't played well. We'd lost the game, and we'd lost the first. I think we'd lost. I think it was the third game of the season, and we'd lost two. And we were obviously this was the season we wanted to win the title, so we'd lost three one. And Rafa has actually came out after the game, and and sort of. He'd said a few things that had got maybe blew up out of proportion, but he sort of had to go to senior players uh, after the game. So there was a big meeting uh, a day later. Rafa was explaining himself, and, and obviously, because the team hadn't started well, everyone was getting a few things off the chest, uh, really. And it probably didn't bode well for the season, but it was all, all sort of sorted out. And then a few days later, your piece was in there because we can see the goal. I think, I think. I think every goal we'd conceded in the first two or three games, I think there was five goals. I think four of them were set pieces. And there was a big thing with uh, zonal marking at the time with Rafa and different things. Um, I come in and I was wrong. I was out of order. But it was an emotional thing when you come in after the game and the dressing, you're throwing your boots down, you've just lost. And I said, any chance of us ever doing anything fucking different on a set piece? You know what I mean? And to be honest, Rafa pulled me on it. He was right. You know, you, you don't just change on the back of one game, but it was just emotion, frustration. But then it popped up in your column. And I'm like, well, I know Rafa and uh, Guillaume's close. I know I know Guillaume. And I thought, oh, no, we've had a clear air talk a few days ago. No, this is in the press uh, about the, uh, the set pieces. So I, I said to Rafa, I'm not, I'm not happy with this. So Rafa then, as you say, had a little uh, get-together with the players uh, Really, so you, you can't build this up, Guillaume, and not give us the source. <laughs> well, let me keep the source <laughs> to my, close to my heart because he wasn't. Uh, I, I, th- I think eventually he didn't become one of the favorite players at the time because he he um, he didn't adapt well and uh, and eventually left. But uh, in any case, um, what I find fascinating there is the relationship between the media and the players, the manager. And when, when that, that um, uh, gets found out, uh, how people react. And, and I, found, I found great that Rafa actually said, yeah, yeah, it was me, uh, when actually it wasn't. But you must know that he actually then rang me <laughs> and told me off. I said, this is not the kind of thing you should, you should be put out there. And anyway, I know who told you, and I know who told you, and you know, I'm going to tell him off. And I think he got him aside and told him off. But how do you find the when you were on the other side, when you were a, a player, of course, the relationship with, with the media? How close did you get to them of what you can say, of course? How important was it to have a, a relationship going somehow? I think it is important in some ways. And the reason being is you play for a big club like Liverpool, you have to speak to the press. I mean, it's, it's a huge club. And I used to enjoy speaking to the press and being totally honest. I used to enjoy doing interviews because I, I love talking about football. And uh, I think most people found that I was a decent... It was a good interview. Basically, I'd always say something. I wouldn't speak in cliché. So I actually enjoyed doing them. I think you're always closest to, you know, the local press, really, who are are a big supporter of the club and the players, really. I mean, if the local press ever go against the manager or the club, you know, it's, it's dark days or it's almost possibly the end for a manager, really. So, you know, local lads who... If the same as you, the big probably supporters, they haven't had a talent for football, they've got a talent for writing. So, yeah, so I was quite pally with, you know, Chris Bascom, Tony Barrett, Don King. They were all lads who who were the, the Liverpool correspondent for the for the local paper. 
not so much with National, really as such, because you didn't have as close a relationship with them, but you know them and you do the odd interview and different things like that. And, and, and hence possibly why you were close to maybe the Spanish lads because you've got, you know, the Spanish thing, the situation, you moved to Liverpool. So, you know, you build that bond. And, and I think it works for everyone. If let, Let's be honest about it. The, the press need players, not so much for information, but it's just sometimes nice to get an interview or speak on things. And also players sometimes need someone batting there, batting for them. Really, at times, maybe when times are tough or maybe something the wrong end of the stick has come out about, a game or something off the pitch, whatever it may be. I think we all we all know the rules of it that we're all sort of we help help each other. Yeah, for, for us it was um, a bunch of immigrants uh, helping each other. That's that's how I felt. And it was it was the first Spanish guys or the Spanish coaching staff that were really settling in England, and they didn't they needed to know how it all worked, and at the same time sometimes helped to understand how how you know why of the reactions, but. I decided to stop working for the Daily Mirror uh, soon after that because I thought this is not worth it. Uh, when uh, you know one of your main sources tells you off, almost stops talking to you. I thought, ah, no, it's not worth it. I'll, I'll deal with that. Another kind of journalism, if you like. You've done the same when you've gone to the other side. God, you've embraced uh, doing interviews. By the way, you should do a book. You've done a book now based on games, and we'll get into that in a minute. But you could have done a book on the interviews you've done. Was it that the Telegraph? Yeah, the Telegraph, yeah, we've done some big interviews, obviously a, a podcast similar to yours, we do, we do interviews on that, so I, I do like doing interviews because sometimes I worry that uh, people may get sick of hearing my opinion or my view on something all the time, so I think sometimes I think it's nice to hear someone else's view on, on, on a situation and, and see if I can get more answers out of them than maybe they would with someone else and and maybe helps my skills going forward when I might have to start asking questions more. Maybe if there's a new role in the future, who knows? In the podcast, in in, in the interviews you did for the paper, what what was the one that really stand out and you learn a lot or, or or you hear things you didn't expect? I think whenever you get Klopp, you know you've got a good interview. You don't you don't need to wait for the interview. It's almost getting Jurgen Klopp is gold or so. No matter what that's for. So I think of an interview for the the paper before the Champions League final. He just has a way with words and he'll come out with something that you've never heard before. And he said something about Liverpool, you know, when he first came in, basically uh, how poor they were. So, you know, we, we, he, he, I'm trying to think of the line now. He, he basically said his Liverpool team would become a supermodel where every, everyone wanted to go out, where everyone wanted to see it, everyone wanted to speak to it. It wasn't the case when he first came in. I'm not quite sure what the way they used to describe what Liverpool were and what the gale was when he first came in. But, uh, we've had him, uh, spoke to him there. Also on Monday Night Football, we still speak about Jürgen Klopp coming on on that show there and, and, and helping us and giving us more than what maybe other people have come on because they're a little bit guarded because they're a manager. So he's almost gold just when you get in. But in terms of playing-wise, I'd say uh, I'd say Xavi Hernandez. I've spoken to him for the newspaper. I've spoken to him for the book as well. And uh, I think that it's fair to say we've got similar passions on on the game, really. And it's obvious to me he's going to be a future Barcelona manager. Yeah, and the Monday Night Football show, uh, two, two managers that you tried to get right from the start when they first arrived was, uh, was Pep Guardiola and, and Pochettino. And, uh, and eventually you managed to convince them, as you always do. Uh, what, what was your impression of both of them? Well, I think with Poch, it was great to get them on because no one had seen him for such a long time. I think every, Pochettino is one of those guys who everyone loves. I think even maybe secretly Arsenal supporters, you can't not like him. 
he comes across as such a nice guy and, and everyone loves watching his teams, really. It was great coming on. It's just like a double act with him in uh, Jesus. So obviously you don't see him on camera but when the game was on and we were watching the game together. It was great just listening to them, talking to them about players and, and where they want to go in the future. There was no mention, I must say, of, uh, of Paris Saint-Germain at that time. A lot of talk was of Manchester United, really, but they've already got off to a good start. I think they've got the first trophy, but to get these people on, it's not just for the viewer. I don't feel, I think it's for me as well, and, and Dave Jones or Gary Neville, if he's there. For us to learn as well, I mean, we give opinions on that show, but we Nobody knows everything about football. And, you know, we've never managed or sit, well, I've never managed Gary sitting at the level of Pochettino or Pep or, or Klopp when he came on, Roberto Martinez as well was fantastic when he came on. It, there's so much to learn that you can then use in the future in your own analysis and then go back to it as well. So that's one of the reasons why I like these great football brains coming on. It's great for the show, but to also learn myself really and you know their thought process really so it's it's brilliant and, and you know when you've got someone who's, who's stardust and, and you you almost just want them to run the show because there's that much information coming out of the quality uh, stuff like that Pep Guardiola was exactly that wasn't he, he just uh, just just let him let him deal with it prepare a few things beforehand and uh, and that's it you just need to sit down and listen to him I, I imagine Yes, and that's the thing with managers that we've got come on we possibly learn because you're that excited when they come on you learn not to have too much Stuff because they love the game that much and they go into that much detail. They could spend five or six minutes on one clip. So you, you have all these ideas about we'll, we'll look at this playing from the back, the front three, the four, three, three, the Bruins position. So you're almost in the three hour show, really, because these these football people are so so detailed. They take so long over a, a piece of information or a clip or a video clip on that, and that's what you want. But you're just so desperate to get so much more out of them. You always come away thinking, oh, I want them to come on again. We need to get them on again to speak about this and that. And, and that's just a great thing. And I think that's what the show is. The show is detail. That's the best way to describe it. And I think football detail, with people who are really interested in tactics and setup and formations, they can spend so long on such a detail. And that shows why they are top managers. I imagine the producers in the year saying after three minutes, Move on, move on. We've got another one, and then you have to battle that. We've so got Dave to get and Gary, like, got to get to the break. No, no, stay here because well, this that, is special. I'll just give you an example that no one picked up on at the time. But when we had Jurgen Klopp, it was that good that the first hour of the show, we had to obviously go to the game. We couldn't, we couldn't stop the game. <laughs> but we did, we didn't actually put the managers' interviews in before the game. So rather than listen to both managers, that would normally be a two or three minute interview we just they obviously did the interview but we didn't put it in the show because we'd rather have six minutes of clock I can't tell you who the managers were at the time I can't think off the top of my head but the producer made a big decision that's possibly never been done before but I think it was the right one was that we'd rather have an extra five or six minutes of Jürgen Klopp than the two managers so God knows what Twitter was like with the uh, the clubs <laughs> who were involved because they're quite quick to tell you if you haven't done enough on them before Monday night but Klopp was, uh, as I said, was gold dust and we had to keep him on. Yes, and uh, uh, what when it gets interesting uh, as well is when the cameras stop rolling and you sit down and then you discuss things. Did you find that they all relaxed and there was a different kind of, even tone in their voices and you learned things there off the record that, uh, that you didn't expect? Yes, because, I mean, as you know before, you mentioned Rafa Benitez and, and Rafa Benitez used to have a great saying that football is a lie 
And what he basically means is we all say a certain thing on camera, but off camera we all say something completely different. And I think that is the case a lot of times, especially with managers, not so much with, with me and you. Our job is to give our honest, honest opinions and we're paid for that. But obviously when managers and coaches or players, or current players, I should say, come on TV shows, they have to be really careful what they say. They can't allow anything to be blown up out of proportion. It's, can I give enough without crossing that line? And if I don't, But if I don't give anything, everyone will say, the show was boring, he didn't have much personality. So it's always a difficult balancing act when you get someone on. And we know that, we appreciate that. So we always say we would never put anyone in a really tough position and ask something that was, put them really on the spotlight. When Pochettino came on, it was massive talk about Manchester United. We asked one question on it only because we'd get criticised if we didn't ask it. But it's almost a case of we don't really care how you answer, just so we can say we've asked you. We don't. We're not really bothered about Man United. That's not what the show is. It's more about tactics and and things like that. And Pochettino was really worried coming on, really. So I had to speak to him a, a day before and assure him that it would be football and you know it wouldn't be about sensational stuff, really. So I think that helps us get people on because I think people realise we're trying to not get big headlines out of them that would cause problems in the future, but just have a football chat. You changed the trend in many things, but one of them is that I remember when we were doing the, the previews of games, uh, it would be first half an hour, then at the end it was like two, five minutes, and that's it, because nobody watches the game, sorry, nobody watches the show before the game starts. That's changed. We're all watching Monday Night Football for sure. Also on a Monday, the, the, one of the biggest, best shows is on a Monday. That is also a change of trend. You're listening to Can We Come In with Guillaume Balagay. The halftime break is brought to you by GentingBet. Visit sports.gentingbet.com for all the latest odds and in-play betting. And please, gamble responsibly. One of the things that um, uh, I picked on the book is the, uh, the facility that I knew anyway of you understanding what, uh, what happens in the games. But... Uh, once you start, once you pick the games, and the games are, uh, you know, from Liverpool 4-0 to Barcelona, uh, Arsenal beat Liverpool 2-0, the 5-1 of England against Germany, up till, you know, the Barcelona 3, Manchester United 1, or, or the Istanbul night. Was the one game that you, you had to uh, change your analysis or change your mind about where you had thought of the game by looking back at it? Yes, I think the big one was maybe Manchester United uh, beaten by Munich in the, the new camp in 99 because that forever anyone will tell you that Manchester United were the luckiest team alive and, and of course they had huge luck if you, if you score two goals in the, in the last minute of a game but they performed a lot better than what they ever given credit for really and Bayern Munich only had themselves to blame because they shut up shop very early on after going one nil up and Manchester United were the better side without being at their ultimate best really so I, I had no really sympathy watching it back um, because of how Bayern Munich set up, really. And Bayern Munich almost set up like they were away from home and they took an early leg in the first leg of the semi-final and they were waiting to go back for the second leg, as most teams will. But this was a final. It was a one-off game, really. And, uh, yeah, I think with the problems Manchester United had, the players that were out, I thought David Beckham's performance was sensational, really, and something that's never really spoken about. I think we always talk about, you know, Solskjaer, especially getting that goal. And, and as you can imagine, it's a game I've never revisited ever before. 
And I think I watched it in a, well, I know where I watched it. I watched it in Las Vegas in a casino. I was on holiday at that time. And I was absolutely distraught when those two goals went in in the last minute. So I'd never watched it again. And uh, yeah, I, w- I watched it again, really went through it again. And uh, Alex Ferguson always said after the game, he felt Manchester United did deserve it. And I think he was laughed at and thought maybe he was biased. But I haven't watched it again and, and really looked at it. I have to. Uh, I have to agree. So you've gone back three or four decades in in football, and if you had to pick, I don't know if you had this uh, thinking already, but if you had to pick one or two things that have changed through football, the biggest things, what would those be? I think the stand and the quality of the football, technically, and I know players from maybe the eighties get a little bit upset by that when we the heroes talk about the game now and we talk about overlapping fullbacks, centre backs getting on the ball. Uh, you know, playing between the lines, these type of sayings that we use. But I think it, it sometimes upsets players from the 80s that we say they were not capable of it, but maybe they were. But maybe they weren't capable of it because of the pitches or the way the game was played, the, the aggression in the game that stopped free-flowing football. Really. So when, when you watch the difference to a game of football now to when I was watching Everton by Munich that we analysed in 1985, I mean, it almost looks like a completely different game. And that's not being disrespectful to those players. I think, as I said, sometimes they get frustrated with that. But, I mean, I watch games from when I played. When I watch football now, Liverpool play now, it's a completely different game t- technically and how long these teams keep the ball for. We, yeah, we have this idea of how good teams were in the past. Now, they were, they were great teams. I always think, you know, any team that's great in a specific area could have adapted to any area. I always believe that because I think the football is better now because players are looked after better, pitches are better, advances with foreign coaches coming into uh, into the game as well. But, but I do always believe football gets better. I'm not one of them who says, in my day, it was better for this. I always think football's getting better, moving forward, getting faster, improving, uh, really. But I do always believe great players could have adapted to uh, different eras as well, really. But I, I just think the actual the actual game and, and how how different systems are played a lot more now. When I was growing up in the 80s, it was 4-4-2. Certainly in England, every team played the same and whoever had the best team won. Really, now I think there's a lot more to it. Uh, I think the TV aspect of it, now watching games constantly, coaches having so much analysis on the opposition as well. Really, so you've always got to try and come up with something different, a different plan, which I think it makes it a lot more interesting to us to actually analyse, if I'm being honest. I, th- I look at the 80s games and I'm thinking... If you were doing a Monday night football show where everyone was playing the same system in the league, playing a, a similar style of football, it's certainly a lot easier, to, I would say, to analyse football now. One of the things, I've just finished the uh, biography of, uh, of Maradona. One of the things that I, I picked on that is the empowering of referees because the tackles were unbelievable. <laughs> in, uh, in 86, uh, in, in, in the meeting against England, Argentina, England, England just went hard but fair. But there were other games against Belgium, against Korea, uh, against Brazil, in, in, in also in '82, in which like they could have broke the man, and the referees couldn't do anything because a tackle from behind wasn't a red at the time, and uh, and it was allowed that kind of that kind of football. That of course has benefited football, hasn't it? And the artists. Yes, without a doubt. I mean, you mentioned the World Cup. I think the famous one is Gentile, I think, and that was in, was that in 82, was it? Or was that, was that 82? In 82, more... and uh, it was, uh, I think it was 37 fouls or something. He only got a yellow after 45 minutes, and that's all he got, one yellow. So, uh, so yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it just, and I think, 
I think in some ways that's why for a lot of people Maradona may be number one in a lot of people's eyes because I think the game is obviously getting more physical and faster uh, and it obviously got to a point where it couldn't continue and now we're, we're almost going the other way. But I think Maradona was playing when it was at its height of cynicism, really. Uh, you think of maybe playing in Italy as well with two-man markers and a sweeper in behind, certainly in those early days. I know that changed maybe in the late 80s when you know Milan came in and maybe teams started playing more of a back four in a zonal system. But you know what he was up against in that day and age. I think that's why Maradona gets so much respect really for the you know the player that he was, not necessarily because his numbers are better than Messi or Ronaldo, but the fact that he played in an era where people thought, wow, you know, you talk about courage and bravery of players, well, actually taking the ball, knowing tackles from behind are coming. And also the fact that he was still taking the ball in those situations when his career was nearly finished a few years before, I think by uh, the butcher of Bilbao, Goyke Chea, uh, when he was playing for Which, Barcelona. Which, by the way, to- by the way, Jamie, nobody calls him like that in Spain. This is a, a saying that uh, I think he came out in the sun first and uh, and he's been repeated since. Poor guy! <laughs> but uh, but uh, let, let me agree to disagree on that one and see what you think of it. Maradona reached heights that I've never seen anybody in all the football that I've seen back and in my lifetime, reach heights between 85 to 87, in which he wins the World Cup and wins the first Scudetto with, uh, in 87 with, with Napoli, heights that I've never seen anybody do, especially semifinals against Belgium. He was unbelievable, almost won the game on his own. But by then, already in 86, 87, he was, he was addicted to cocaine already and he's body was already given up. Still won a Scudetto with uh, uh, Napoli in, in 90. Those heights nobody reached. But to actually do it for 10, 15 years, like Cristiano, like Messi have done, um, you that have been a professional, you must be in awe of, uh, of, of doing it so often and doing it in the big games. Are you surprised, first of all, that Maradona really picked in such a small uh, space of time, but we still remember him so, so fondly. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one, that, because I, I always believe this. We, most footballers have a career from the age of 20 to 35. But people will only remember four, five moments or things that really happen. It may be a bit different from Messi or Ronaldo, uh, really. But I even think of a player in England like Paul Gascoigne. He's loved... Mm-hmm. Not because he played well every week and won lots, because he's got those four or five moments that were huge, like the World Cup in uh, 1990, Euro 96, the goal against Arsenal in a big semi-final. He has those four or five moments everyone can remember and it united the country. So he's a, an absolute god uh, in England, Paul Gascon. Will we ever get another Gascon? But then I look at players like Gerard Beckham, Scholes, who did it every week for 10 or 15 years and won lots more trophies, won European trophies. But England and a tournament is the pinnacle. And I think that's what the situation with Maradona. And I used to think this with South American players when I was a kid, even Brazil players. And it was different because we didn't watch them week in, week out. But they'd almost get themselves ready for tournaments. And and I'd watch like Dunga, who was a Brazil captain, playing like semi-finals and finals. But you wouldn't really know who he played for. You know, I think he played for Fiorentina, didn't he? Or smaller teams, or maybe he was back in Brazil. And he'd be like, these players just come together in these tournaments, really, and get themselves ready. And that's why the unique and remembered so often. But the thing with Maradona is because 
86 was my my memory. I didn't watch Napoli every week. I know they won the league twice, and it was amazing. It never been done before or after. But because you never saw them so often, there was a mystique to them. Whereas now, when we watch Messi and Ronaldo, we're almost too critical of them mm-hmm. when when they go a couple of games not playing well because we watch them that much. It doesn't seem special when you watch them as much now, and I think that was the difference maybe with Pele in the past when people are watching Brazil uh, in Mexico in 1970, and Pele's having a shot from the halfway line, he's dummy in the goalkeeper, he's going random. I just think there was more of a mystique to tournament then, uh, and I think that was a, that was a good thing. I should say I love watching Messi and Ronaldo every week, but I, I do think we've lost that mystique of tournaments that we had in the past, which I think maybe elevated Maradona and maybe a Pele even higher in people's eyes than a Messi and Ronaldo who actually do it week in, week out for like 15, 20 years. In fact, you describe wonderfully why we'll never agree who was the greatest player ever, because it is such a subjective thing that perhaps even have to do in some cases with seven games played in, 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 a, in, a, summer, in a summer tournament. But having said that, Messi or Ronaldo for you? <laughs> hey, Messi, I've, I've never changed that. I think I'm with the majority on that. I think I have possibly more respect for Ronaldo, and the reason I say that is because he has he has got unbelievable talent, but his mentality, his focus, his work rate has made him what he is, or got him to where he is, has taken him to another level. Where whenever you think he's finished or Messi's done something amazing, he comes back with something again and again and again. And it must have been tough for him at times, even when he was at late stages at United, early days at Madrid, where it was still Messi. Was all, everyone, no matter what he did, people would say Messi, Messi, Messi. I think now it's a bit more even, really. Uh, but I think of all those Ballon d'Ors, Messi was when even when Ronaldo was playing out of his skin. But he still came back for more. And that's what I respect so much. But what I would say is, I think Ronaldo does things that other players can do, but he does them more often. You know, he scores more goals. But he, but I think Messi does things that other players can't do. So when another player watches... So you see Ronaldo score a, a great goal and you think, well, OK, I've seen that before. But when but Messi... But Ronaldo does it so often. But Messi, the way he dribbles and runs with the ball, you very rarely see that in football now. I mean... Most teams don't even have a dribbler in the team anymore now. You don't see anyone run the ball. So he does things that professional footballers are open-mouthed with. That's the best way to describe it. It's not just supporters. It's like top players are thinking, I can't believe that. I can't believe he's done that. And that spell with with Pep going into uh, Luis Enrique's team, that era of like, seven, eight years when Barcelona was just it was just off the scale what, what Messi was doing. And that's why I'd always go for Messi because he does things that uh, other players can't and, and leave them open mouth. I've got a I've got an answer when I get asked that one. Messi, no, start with Ronaldo. Ronaldo but the best striker in the history of the game at a time where it's so difficult to um, to defend. Sorry, it's easier to defend and so difficult to attack. He manages to still find a way in whatever place he's been. Best striker in the world ever. And Messi, the best player in the world ever. Uh, so I kind of spot on. <laughs> in uh, uh, not sitting on the fence, but the, you know, helps with the uh, with the question. Uh, now going back to the book, uh, one of the things that have evolved is the re- the, um, the the presence and the importance and the uh, relevance of the uh, of the managers. So managers were I can and you've gone through that transition yourself, haven't you? Uh, especially having 
having been at Liverpool with with that also went through through its own transition in terms of what kind of manager they got. Uh, that is the, the the one of the big changes in the last two three decades, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you're talking about the change in managing the styles of managers. Yeah, how they relate to the team, what's their importance, and what the job is really. Yeah, it's interesting really because I hear a lot of people, managers even say this now, and players saying how how important man management is, and there's no doubt of of course it's important, and but when people say it's the most important thing, I I don't necessarily agree. For me. The information from the manager in terms of how we're going to play, how we're going to set up, really for me is more important. I just, I, you know, I think the great managers have a great balance of all aspects you need to be a manager. I'm sure that's what makes Pep and Jürgen Klopp at this moment seen as the two top managers, really. But for me, I, I want the the information, uh, the coaching, the you know, the the way of working to be that. That for me is the most important, really to improve the players, make the team as strong as possible and make the team as, as best as possible. I think in the past, I would never, I'm not going to knock former managers, but what I mean by that is that I think the job is a lot tougher now, certainly with the media scrutiny, social media. I think even buying players now is maybe taking out the manager's hands and it's actually, you've got to look around the world, you're looking for players around the world. Whereas I think if you go back to the, the 60s, the 70s, you think of in England, Bill Shankly, Don Revy, uh, Matt Busby. If you want a player, you're basically looking in the first division. You're looking at the, the possibly the players you played against that season, really. So it's not integrating foreign players. And so I think it's a lot tougher now, bigger squads as well. They're really, so I think there's a lot more to management right now than there possibly was done in the past. But I think that's the same with players as well. We ask so much of players now, more than we'd asked uh, of them before. But uh, I think dealing with the media as well, agents as well now, uh, and managing up. I know we talk about uh, recruitment strategies of a club, maybe not in the hands of the manager, owners from abroad, you know, keeping them on side. So I think the job is getting more and more complex. Really, I know managers will say we have to do everything in the past. You know, now there's you know things are delegated. And I I understand that, but I actually think that's right as well. Have you retired, uh, Jimmy Carragher, the manager, before he even started? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. No, I don't envisage myself going into management. I love the job I do. I'm lucky. I think I've got one of the best jobs on TV. But I think management is so precarious. It really is. Uh, I actually feel sorry for some managing situations where a job's just, before you know it, it's taken away from them. They haven't had long enough to stand their authority on it. Really, I think the reaction from the media, social media towards managers is is way over the top and and uh, out of order. I think at certain stages that we think these these fellas are idiots uh, because they have a few bad results, really, and that's not the case at all, uh, really. Uh, most managers, I'm certainly, I'll say most, I'd say 99% have got a great knowledge of the game, understanding the game. There's, there's always things going on behind the scenes that they can never say publicly within a club, they always come out years later when the, the books come out or they speak to Game Balagain and interview maybe uh, or they come on Monday Night Football uh, with me, really. So there's so much more to it. Uh, I think me leaving leaving home to go and be a manager, I think it was not something I was prepared to do. I didn't want it enough. I love football, I think, more than Stephen Gerrard, Frank Lampard, Wayne Rooney who have gone into management, who are my peers, if you like, in my group. I would say I was more obsessed with football when we were all players, and they'd admit that. 
Again, that doesn't mean you can or you can't be a manager. But I, I also think I would find it frustrating as a manager that people didn't share my passion. So I, I have a feeling that I would, I would fall out with people and I would be at times maybe too emotional, really. So I think that might be something maybe against me being a manager in the, uh, certainly in the future. And, and I think, I think results would affect me because they really affected me as a player, really. And I think I used to have some dark times with Liverpool when things weren't going well or I wasn't playing well myself. Because I had such a big fear of failure. I wanted to win so much that I think that would be, you know, doubly as bad when I was I was as a manager. So I think I, I would find those situations tough to deal with. Let, let me say that if uh, there is any bit in your mind that things like, well, maybe I should try all. Uh, well, was an I brought into this world to be part of, 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 of inside the game. Forget it, because you actually are helping us understand the game better, and that to me is a bigger legacy than winning a game or even a hundred games. So, uh, from that point of view, again, thank you. We're finishing uh, now, but you looked at the past, and that's the easiest way to understand the future or to understand where we're going. So, have you had time to think what next for football in terms of how it's played or? how it's going to evolve. We've now gone through a you know, high-pressure building from the back. Uh, there is the suggestion that the goalkeepers will get involved further up the pitch, that now we've seen the full-backs getting inside. Have you had time to think, what next? I mean, it's, it's something we think and we talk about on Monday Night Football a lot, really. And you just think, can the game become more technical, really? I'm not, I'm not. I think there's always ways going forward. I think I saw something, even in the lower leagues, I think it was Milton Keynes, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot the manager's name. I think he used to play for Norwich. And his his goalkeeper was becoming like a right centre-back. So they had no one in goal. And the centre-back was going to... And, and it was like a knock-on effect to give them an extra player further forward. And I saw a clip of that. I think we should maybe look at that on Monday Night Football, actually. Didn't Pep try something like that as well with Ederson uh, in, uh, next to the centre-backs? Yeah, I think, I, think that was, I think that was in the goal kick. That was something I saw Pep do on the goal kicks in the charity right. shield against Liverpool a couple of years ago. It hasn't quite gone into the Premier League as much where he was actually... There was no goalkeeper. He was standing on the six-yard box with a centre-back and the other centre-back went on the edge of the box with the midfielders and then... They were getting, creating a number 10 overload between the lines and Liverpool were a little bit wary to go and press. So it's just, I, th- I always say the game goes in cycles and we'll have a team who win again, who play counter-attack or a defensive. I don't think it's that long ago when Leicester won the league. Even Conte's team with Chelsea that won the league was was not free-flowing. It was a brilliant team, the three at the back, but it was a solid team. So that wasn't that long ago. And I don't think that it'll... We won't ever get a title winner doing that again. I think it'd be very difficult to go fully where we are now, how technical the game is to go fully back to a really robust game where there's not much football, really. I think I think supporters now are educated enough and want to actually go and watch a team play good football. I think in the past it was always the, all the results always that matters. And for me, if I you know, for me it's always the results is always bigger than the performance, but over time, if the performances aren't there, you'll you will you know you'll lose games. You won't win. So I think that's a problem now for maybe managers in the past. You look at Sam Allardyce now, who's come in, and, and those type of managers, I think they'll find it more and more difficult to to get jobs uh, unless that job is all about results, which is West Brom at this moment. But what happens, I think, in those jobs is once the 
cement themselves in the Premier League. They want the next thing and those managers maybe can't give them. And that's when they have to sort of move them on, really. So I think the game is that technical now. I think if you're a young coach coming into it and you're not seen as someone who, who plays good football, who plays from the back, I think you'd find it very difficult to get a top job. I really do. And, and I think that's something, if you want to get to the top in football, whether it's a manager country, manage someone in the Champions League, you've got to be thinking of your own idea, not copy people. But I think you've got to have an element of what the top teams are doing and the top coaches are looking to do. Last question for you, uh, taking advantage of you mentioning Milton Keynes. Uh, I don't know if you know, but I'm the chairman of a, of a football club in the Step 5 in England, Beagles Red United. And uh, this season, the, think, the thinking is from most people to null and void the season for the second consecutive year. Null and void. As if what we've done in the last two years doesn't count at all. How would you feel if you were a, a, you know, a non-league player and they tell you the last two seasons count for nothing? How do you think about null and void? How, what, what's, what are you thinking of that? No, I don't like it at all. I didn't like it last season. People thought it was just because Liverpool were on the verge of in the league. I think when you've, you've invested so much into a league season... Uh, I think it's very unfair and I, and I think uh, I don't like that at all. There was definitely talk of that last season and it was basically every every club was looking after themselves and the people who were coming out to not null and void, the teams who were fighting relegation and were thinking about money, really. And uh, I just never felt those teams should be rewarded for a poor performance. So the reason they want null and void is because they're, they're struggling in the league. They haven't had a great season. They've had to change the manager and then teams... The division below, who've had great seasons, done everything right, they're getting punished and can't come up because of this null and void situation. So, no, I'm, a, I'm certainly not a null and void. I never will be. Even if Manchester United maybe look like they're on the verge of uh, bringing the title back, I uh, I wouldn't be calling for null and void because I, I don't think it's fair when so much is being invested on the pitch, off the pitch, emotionally, by coaches and managers up and down the country within football and that's no matter whatever level you play it doesn't matter what level you play we all invest that emotional side into it and football means so much to us all whether you're playing in non-league or you're playing for the Champions League or the Premier League it's still the same We, you know it's just a different quality of football but what we invest in it is all the same whether you're chairman of your club or John Henry at Liverpool Yeah our first team men and ladies they're doing really well uh, right at the top to be promoted but on the 23s are at bottom of the table of their league and I still feel the same that Null and Boyd would be uh, rewarding mediocrity. Uh, one last favour. Uh, the Jackson family was uh, the ones who looked after me when I first came to Liverpool. I lived in Aplewood Road in their house in a little room that they kept for me. And uh, for a year and a half I was there. Uh, I had gone there for three months. And after uh, three months they said, you're still here? Well, uh, yeah, I was, I was there for a year and a half. They, they looked <laughs> after me. Archie, the father, is not with us. But uh, Valerie is going to be 80. And... Uh, she loves you to bits, and I wonder if you can send her a little message of uh, happy birthday to uh, to her. Of course, Valerie. Thank you for looking after Guillaume. He's a good guy. He speaks so highly of you. Delighted that uh, you can celebrate, hopefully in some small way, this 80th birthday. It's certainly a big one, and uh, no doubt if you get to the big 9-0, I'll send you another one as well. So enjoy this one. Hope it goes well, as well as it possibly can. And uh, if that spare room's there, if Guillaume ever needs a room... Uh, <laughs> Past COVID times, post COVID times, I should say. Uh, make sure the bed's still warm for him. <laughs> Jamie, as always, it's been such a pleasure to have a time uh, time with you and to keep learning from you and uh, just keep being as positive and, and happy and, and strong and energetic as you are. Thank you very much. 
Thanks again. Thank you.